0: Welcome to FRT, the IAF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IAF. I'm here with Jennifer Laster, Executive Director of the Digital Dollar Project. As Executive Director, Jen convenes private sector thought leaders to explore the future of money and advance the exploration of a U.S. central bank digital currency through a deliberative process, including pilots, stakeholder meetings, roundtables, and discussion forums. Welcome,
1: Jen. Thank you, Jess. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation and excited to talk about our most recent publication with you.
0: We're so excited to have you. In addition, I should mention in her current role as Executive Director of the Digital Dollar Project, Jen serves also on the World Economic Forum's Digital Currency Governance Consortium and the Progressive Policy Institute's Mosaic Economic Project. And prior to joining the Digital Dollar Project, she served as a founding member of the Innovation Lab at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and was a senior leader in the innovation and technology offices at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So we've got a lot to talk about today and we're excited to have her here. So uh, with that, Jen, let's start a little bit about the Digital Dollar Project itself. If you could familiarize our listeners with the project, for those who aren't as familiar, what is the project? What's the objective? Who's involved?
1: Great. Thanks, Jess. I'm happy to introduce the Digital Dollar Project um, to our audience today. Digital Dollar Project is a nonprofit founded in May of 2020 and based out of the United States. We're focused on research and discussion around the potential advantages and challenges of a U.S. central bank digital currency. Um, we work very hard to convene and incorporate Diverse perspectives and the expertise of a broad range of stakeholders, including the private sector, academia, nonprofit leaders, um, and all to inform the national consideration of a digital dollar and more broadly to understand the implications of global central bank digital currency developments for Americans. We released a version two of our white paper, which was initially released when we were started in 2020. And what we've captured in this white paper, and I'm excited to discuss with you today, is really all of the global developments that have occurred over the past two years, as well as a list of domestic developments, which we saw really unfold across last year, across the Federal Reserve System and within our uh, policymaking bodies.
0: Awesome. So excited to talk to you about that uh, 2.0 white paper today. Before we get to the paper itself, um, just a few high level questions about your macro view of development of CBDCs. I know that some of the paper addresses how that global view is looking and, and how things are developing. Can you lay out just how you're looking at the development in different jurisdictions of the world and an overall feeling for where things are going?
1: Sure. So in the paper, we cite some sources. Atlantic Council has a central bank digital currency tracker that I highly recommend folks take time to visit and be able to see where certain economies stand in terms of research development and deployment. OMFIF also released a study um, end of last year citing um, status for certain countries in regards to central bank digital currency uh, research and development as well. The quick summary is that as of January 2023, the central banks of 114 countries or currency unions were at various stages of active CBDC exploration. This is an incredible uptick since the paper was originally published. Again, that was May of 2020, where there were only 35 countries exploring central bank digital currency. So what is important for us us to note is that in 2020, we truly felt that central bank digital currency was still hypothetical. It was uh, coming out of a, a difficult time. We were in the middle of a global pandemic. There was a global economic recession looming, if not already, in full force. And so a lot of the digital innovations to support and, and try to rectify or provide relief for citizens during that time included central bank digital currency exploration, certainly not deployment. In the past two years, again, we are up to 114 countries at various stages of exploration. The European Central Bank has stated a goal of deploying a central bank digital currency by 2025, I believe. Um, and of course, we're all familiar with China's EUN having issued its pilot CBDC to 260 million digital wallets. And they are actively engaging with other countries and international organizations around their technological development of central bank digital currencies. So we had a couple of of takeaways that came out of this analysis and let me share those with you now. So three observations. The first observation was that central banks are laser focused on improving domestic payments efficiencies with a emphasis on cross-border payments This uh, should come as no surprise to anyone. If you look at the uh, Bank for International Settlements and a recent survey that they released, they iterated that domestic payments efficiency and payment safety are at the heart of all of the motivations for issuing general purpose central bank digital currencies. We saw this theme echoed in President Biden's uh, March 2022 executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. Um, Again, and I quote indicating a key focus on whether and how a CBDC could improve on an already safe and efficient U.S. domestic payment system. Our second observation uh, was that uh, CBDCs could benefit financial stability, Um, and um, I encourage everyone to go to the paper um, and to look at um, several of the sources that we cited um, that showed a general pattern of um, possible benefits for financial stability stemming from central bank digital currency deployment. So I think there's long been a conversation that should a central bank digital currency um, be deployed, that the impact uh, would um, would could hinder um, or could decrease money supply um, held in commercial banks. We believe that there is not data or empirical evidence that supports that. And in fact, we're starting to see, as we note in the paper, that there could be positive benefits and enhancement rather than a weakening of financial stability. And then finally, our third observation, which is that CBDCs could hold promise for bolstering financial inclusion. I put an asterisk after that observation because there's just a lot of research that has to be done. And quite frankly, a lot of research that has to be done in the United States to determine both how we define financial inclusion and how we would measure it in this potential digital future.
0: Um, a few of those, as, as you noted, are certainly things that have been discussed and, and debated and continue to be so, whether there is empirical data now or we need to do more research to find out what that data would show us o- over time so that we end up at, at a construct or design of a potential CBDC that achieves the objectives that some of the central banks are laying out and knows that we know that it does so and it's fit for purpose appropriately. I think that a number of these things are worth discussing a little bit more so why don't we jump actually to the financial inclusion um, last point that you you ended with and we'll kinda of go backwards up your list. So I know that recently um, MIT presented its findings through a webinar after a fair amount of research around central bank digital currencies and i know that you all have been very closely engaged with their work and research and the findings and this is just my kind of quick summary but the findings suggested that the intermediary layer is really where where there are impacts to financial inclusion so either people have access through that intermediary layer or they don't as well and that if there were to be any benefit in terms of financial inclusion of a CBDC, of the change in technology of a dollar or a different sovereign currency, um, that something about the intermediary layer would need to change in order for a positive outcome for financial inclusion to occur, as opposed to a lot of discussion. Uh, around the two-tier you know system where central bank digital currencies would be distributed through banks or, or other intermediaries that already have access to the central bank and have you know fed master account or um, or other other equivalent and through that maintaining kind of the current structure the exact current organization of the financial system and simply just changing the dollar to be a central bank digital currency, that that would not necessarily arrive at the outcome of a change in financial inclusion. How would you, again, just my summary of how I heard the MIT findings to say something about the actual structure would need to change to realize that goal. What are your thoughts on that, and do you agree, disagree with my summary? (laughs)
1: I agree and disagree. <laughs> I, so I think you're you're touching on something and the way that you're explaining it that's really important. So the MIT report was very interesting and posed some provocative questions, particularly around custody, right? Self-custody um, was a big piece that that paper pulled on. But we have to take a step back, I think, before we dive really deeply into specific areas of research. The MIT research was not US-based, for example. And so that step back, what that looks like is starting with a definition. So every economy is going to have different barriers to access to financial products or the financial system, depending on their country. And I think understanding in the United States for the digital dollar project, what barriers to access exist today, and understanding in a very factually based way. So perhaps building on some of the user research that was conducted by MIT and Maiden Labs last summer that was U.S. specific and really pulled out some themes around trust, trust in the system, uh, both at the government level and at the intermediary level. So again, understanding where we are in post-pandemic world, I'm not sure of the terminology Actually, right now, um, obviously, we're still living uh, with COVID, but understanding where we are do, are there technical barriers that still exist? Are there trust barriers that still exist? What are the societal norms that are preventing certain communities from being able to access the existing system. So one, definition of financial inclusion. Once we have a definition of financial inclusion and a snapshot of current state, then we're actually able to talk about what objectives, to your point, what are the functional needs around financial inclusion that we're driving towards? and does a central bank digital currency allow us to achieve those objectives? So you have to understand current state to be able to understand what you're moving towards and then to be able to measure if a CBDC deployed in the United States would actually be able to achieve those objectives. There is no better way to understand that than to do the user research and to conduct pilots or experiments which digital dollar project is committed to doing to really understanding can we realize those objectives or those outcomes that we've defined through academic research and we have seen certainly unfolding globally. Can we realize those in real life use cases in the United States?
0: So let's talk about financial stability again. I know that you are just going up your list of outcomes. I know you mentioned the debate around whether or not it would essentially impact financial institutions' ability to lend, these are my words, but to lend in the current system if a CBDC retail CBDC explicitly were to be launched. And actually I should have started off by reminding listeners of the importance of dividing discussion around or distinguishing discussion around a wholesale CBDC, versus a retail CBDC. Um, Most of the discussion that we've been having has been on retail for the most part, as opposed to wholesale, with the exception of the data that Jen brought up that the Atlantic Council has brought together. I agree, the tracker that they have is definitely worth uh, taking a look at. Um, And you can see that the data that they're tracking shows that about twice as many of the countries or, or jurisdictions that are are tracked, are measured in that manner, are pursuing or working on a retail CBDC versus just the plain old number that are working on or pursuing wholesale CBDCs, I wouldn't necessarily say that that is an indicator about just more interest in a retail CBDC as opposed to economies that traditionally have you know large, uh, significant wholesale payment systems that, that move around the world. And so it would be applicable for them to actually look at that as opposed to others who wouldn't. But not to dive too far in there, but I should have started off with that. So getting back to finding financial stability, if we're talking about retail CBDCs. um, And and there's been a healthy debate about the potential impact on banks' ability to lend and some questions around capping the, the maximum amount of a, of a CBDC, a retail CBDC that any given person or entity might hold in a wallet at a certain time and even discussion about potentially adding a, um, a negative interest rate to holding above, you know, a, a volume of CBDCs above that to, to try to incentivize people to stay within a particular range. Uh, all discussions that are happening at different levels, different countries are looking at what they think would be best for their economy. How do you think about that lending discussion? And and I know you said there's no empirical evidence that suggests that it would hurt it. Are, do you have any concerns are around the ability of banks to continue lending in, in the way they do today?
1: So, I think, again, similarly similarly to financial inclusion, right? So much of this depends on the design of the central bank digital currency itself. And we will see varying designs across different jurisdictions. Um, Just as you had mentioned, kind of thinking about Wholesale versus retail and understanding outcomes that we're driving towards in both use cases, making sure that we're driving with functional needs at the forefront of those design choices. I'm going to step back again for a second before diving into the subject, because I think it's really important to ground ourselves, make sure we're talking um, in the same language. Right now, the Federal Reserve Board has come out and said they are not looking for disintermediation. Um, they are looking right now to understand and explore potential impacts for central bank digital currency, but that will maintain a two-tiered structure and distribution of a central bank digital currency at this time is pointing, they're pointing in the direction of through uh, regulated bank entities that have access to the Fed system. So. Because it doesn't exist, uh, having these conversations <laughs> around what the potential disruption could be, what it could look like, and what are the systemic factors that would lead for certain outcomes is really, really important. So while I said earlier that there is a lack of data around, you know, whether there would be significant change in commercial bank usage with the introduction of a central bank digital Uh, currency, it's still a very appropriate concern and a very important question for us to ask. Would a central bank digital currency decrease the money supply held in commercial banks, thus um, inhibiting their ability to lend, right? That's the very plain English question in front of us. The opposite question is that, would the deployment of a central bank digital currency lead to an increase in the money supply held in commercial banks, given the potential increase in financial inclusion and access? You can also layer onto that question, um, a discussion about innovation, right? So if we are talking about tokenized digital dollar, for example, um, then what innovations would bring, coming back to financial inclusion, people into the system that do not currently exist in the system? And would there be certain incentives for folks, maybe perhaps because access is just easier because it's digital, to be able to put money into the banks that perhaps today is not kept in in our traditional financial systems? So it's a, it's a long way of me saying they're really important questions, and we need to be gaming out both scenarios, but we do so, we make a decision about uh, which direction to follow based on the outcomes we're trying to achieve. And all of our decision makers, both at the policy level, um, the legislative level, have all indicated publicly that they're not looking for a massive disruption. So they would be charging towards an objective that would minimize that.
0: So the paper lays out a number of tenets for a digital dollar. Can you walk us through some of those tenets, just a few, so that we have a feeling for what they might be?
1: Yep. Um, so I will, and uh, apart for the course for this discussion, I'm going to take one step back just to level set as we move into these tenets. For the United States, developing a digital dollar, like any product development, we hope, is going to do two things. It's going to be iterative. So each stage of development is going to build off the one before it, and it's going to be functionally driven. So that can either be from a systemic perspective, what we're trying to achieve through the system system itself or and or um, by prioritizing the end users needs up front. So this could be a citizen, it could be a small business, um, it, in wholesale, it could be, you know, two large banks, for example. So as we're talking through the tenants, I will share that, you know, this is a North Star for us as we think about the development of a US digital dollar. It's not something that is binary, meaning our first tenant of course being tokenization. Does not mean we have tokenization of a digital dollar, or we have nothing, it all fails, right? So it's all on a spectrum and and we have to learn and build off of the research as it's unfolding. So Tokenization is a great example, a great place to start as one of our tenants and some of the questions that fold under tokenization. So we believe that in a tokenized architecture, you could fully take advantage of the benefits uh, such as portability and efficiency and accessibility that come with this new uh, emerging technology, right? We also believe that we could build a system um, that would protect privacy at a bare minimum, which is what we have today, we actually think we can make it better in the future. And I'll talk about that in a second. And we also believe that we can provide enough flexibility in the system that as technology continues to evolve, or perhaps crises continue to unfold, we're able to pivot and make adjustments at the architectural level to be able to accommodate those changes. That does not mean that we have to move our entire central banking system to a blockchain system or a DLT. There's a lot of different flavors that tokenization can come can manifest through. And great example would be Project Hamilton, right, where we saw the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston in partnership with MIT, really looking at to- different levels of tokenization within an account space system. So again, lots of exploration that needs to be done, but understanding that some of the benefits or the outcome that we're striving towards, again, is that portability, efficiency, and accessibility. What are the right technical levers to pull to get us there, what we do in the next six months might look different than what we do in the next six years versus the next 16 years. And that's okay. That's okay. So further down through the tenant rabbit hole, a couple other important pieces to call out. We already talked about maintenance of the two-tiered banking system. Again, I think in the short term, as we're thinking about research and development, it is um, holding stable what we have today, but also creating space to understand what does expansion of the system look like? What what would uh, what benefits could we realize if we had regulated fintechs at the table alongside uh, regulated banks when it comes to distribution, for example? So really playing out and thinking about inclusion and how do we include people who are not currently in the system uh, through flexibility or expansion of existing processes. Another piece I would call out would be third form of currency. So this is incredibly important just to take a minute to share which is that a central bank digital currency is not in replacement of cash. Cash does not go away in any type of product development. I think we would see the same, which would be being very clear about what objectives we're trying to determine, rolling out a central bank digital currency in addition to cash, and then looking at adoption and and patterns and letting the market grow from there. In addition to uh, not replacing cash, it's also important to call out that from digital dollar projects perspective, central bank digital currency does not replace other forms of digital currency. Um, In fact, we could see a place again, depending upon the design and the regulatory frameworks that support it, where a central bank digital currency would encourage innovation and competition with a stable coin and other cryptocurrencies. We think this is very healthy. Consumer choice is very important to us. So again, it's it's thinking about how the ecosystems can support each other and which regulatory frameworks are needed to help that competition flourish. And then finally, um, I do want to call out our tenets around privacy. And I will share that in our research across last year, in our conversations, both with legislators and policymakers, and with the average individual, um, my mom, right? Who I consider often the belly for um, how I'm talking about central bank digital currency. Privacy is the number one thing that everyone cares about. And it's in the U.S., it's outside of the U.S. Understanding, um, well, actually, defining privacy because it comes in lots of different shapes and sizes as we have talked about at the Digital Dollar Project. We saw in the Federal Reserve Board's paper in March the definition consumer privacy. In our privacy principles, we lean in with the definition of individual privacy. And in Digital Dollar Project's most recent pilot, which was a wholesale CBDC pilot with the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, we really honed in on organizational privacy. So being able to define and categorize the various levels of privacy and how they might manifest within a central bank digital currency, and then being able to present and show, again, our hypothesis at TDP is that privacy and security are not binary. As I discussed earlier, it's a sliding scale depending on what you're prioritizing. And being able to then offer up really a champion model similar to the CBDC champion model um, that we issued in May of 2020, a privacy champion model for how CBDCs might be evaluated through the lens of privacy. So for 2023, And we touched on this again in the white paper a bit. You'll see a lot more activity coming out of Digital Dollar Project focused on exactly that, which is starting to define and create the frameworks upon which we can evaluate and understand what objectives and consequences, both intended and unintended, might come out of a central bank digital currency.
0: So much to come in the coming year. I think the last thing I'd like to wrap up our session with is talking about issues of programmability and interoperability among central bank digital currencies. I know that the digital dollar project has advocated for a global CBDC standards on some level and the need to to be addressed. I'd certainly say from an interoperability standpoint for systems to work cross borders while jurisdictions are working on their systems at different speeds from each other and with different needs in terms of their different degrees of maturity of their own infrastructure for their domestic payment systems and for their international, uh, their cross-border payment systems, different geopolitical motivations for pursuing them more quickly or more slowly or a retail one versus a wholesale one many different different needs and, and different motives so with that how are you thinking about those standards and where does programmability um, fall in that i know recently the Eurogroup put out a statement following on an update from the ecb around just the work that has been done in the research on a digital euro and i think it sheds some um, causes some questions about the desire for programmability or not of a central bank digital currency. I know over the last year, we certainly have been looking at that at IF and also thinking about where if a CBDC is programmable, does there come, or is there created some arbitrage between the actual CBDC that's programmable because there is a fundamentally different value proposition because it is um, it, something, you know, operates differently. There's another other functionality to something versus a piece of paper dollar, perhaps, and, and does there become arbitrage between the two such that the value is not perceived the same.
1: I think the way you phrase the question is very telling. Um, What we've seen at Digital Dollar Project is a lot of central bank digital currency development in silos, which, again, if you take a product mindset, it's actually quite normal for the beginning stages of developing any product. Where we are right now, to your point, is understanding where the tensions and intersections will start to happen, right? So that could come from the point of uh, avoiding financial sanctions, for example, right? Some of the geopolitical implications or building multiple systems. Um, So you have a system of people who have access to and a system of people who don't have access to creating a world where we stifle innovation because we haven't created a system that can speak to multiple, uh, technical design choices, for example, or regulatory framework choices. I think understanding both the impact on, um, or the impact of that standards could have in terms of how countries might be looking at trade policies or consumer protection, for example, or digital identity frameworks. Right, which is um, a whole another interesting intersection when we think about digital currency and various jurisdictions um, applications of of identity frameworks. So. We think it's really important to start at the base layer. (laughs) And again, it's like, take a step back. It's too easy to fall down these individual silos in terms of countries, in terms of subject matter. Let's take a step back and, and start to understand where we all agree and use that as a springboard for then how we might want to innovate in our respective countries. So for standard setting, and you'll see in the Digital Dollar Project White Paper at the end, it really is our call to action. Um, One thing that's really important to note, actually I'll I'll share two things. One is that there's a lot of work that's happening. We have um, a very strong network of standard setting bodies internationally um, who have started this work um, a couple of years ago and starting to understand the global impact around interoperability. Two is understanding that engagement on um, any country's part in global standard setting is divorced from a decision around deployment of a central bank digital currency. So the United States, for example, could provide leadership when it comes to prioritizing, as you mentioned, the certain principles that are important to our democratic country in standards, and they can do that without then feeling committed to deploying a central bank digital currency and continuing to do the research and development that, that the decision makers would like to see before they would make that decision. So for us, it is how can we take all of the silos, both in terms of development and in terms of standard setting that have been unfolding in various aspects and stages over the last few years, and how can we bring them together to understand where there's common ground and how we move forward from that common ground. Um, It is important for Digital Dollar Project that the United States plays a leadership role in that space. And again, I think 2022 was really the year where we saw that emboldened language, both from legislators and from the Federal Reserve System, language and action around how they're starting to engage um, in that conversation specifically.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much, Jen, for being with us today and for sharing your views on global central bank digital currency development and for walking us through the Digital Dollar Project's uh, White Paper 2.0. It's out. Please take a look at it, read it, uh, take a reference and and take a look at the Atlantic Council's uh, CBDC tracker and see where things go from here. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IF website as well at if.com